People don't always understand the importance of style or the necessity of style, but it's not a luxury. It's more of an organizing principle. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at Northeastern University in Boston, where I teach and do research in data visualization. Right, and I'm Moritz Stefane. I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. And in fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the beautiful north of Germany. Exactly. And on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, analysis, and more generally, the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show. But before we start, just a quick note, our podcast is listener supported, so there are no ads. Uh, but that also means if you do enjoy the show, you might consider supporting us. You can do that with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. Or you can also send us one-time donations on paypal.me slash data stories. Exactly. Okay, so I think we can get started with the main topic and guests uh, for the show today. So today we have two people on the show. Uh, to talk about, I think, a really relevant topic. I think, in general, what is the relationship between statistics and data visualization? And to talk about that, we have Andrew Gelman and Jessica Holman. Hi, Andrew and Jessica. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. So, as usual, we start uh, by asking our guests to introduce themselves. So, maybe, Andrew, you want to go first and give a brief introduction? I teach statistics and political science at Columbia University. Jessica. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm a professor, associate professor of computer science at Northwestern University. I do research on um, various topics related to how people draw inferences from data, usually from interfaces. So I care about things like visualization. Okay. So I thought we would start our conversation by starting from the blog uh, that I believe Andrew started um, uh, several years ago. It's called Statistical Modeling, Causal Inference, and Social Science. I think it's a really influential blog, and I remember reading the blog since many years. And it's a really interesting community of people and there's a lot of interesting discussions about statistics, but also political science and science in general, and also a lot about data visualization. And I believe Jessica joined the team recently. So we have seen even more data visualization conversations in that, in that space. So Andrew, I was thinking maybe you could give us a little bit of a, uh, overview of what the blog is about. Maybe if you want even to say how it started and what are the main topics there. In 2004, I was working with a postdoc, Samantha Cook, and we had an idea of setting up a blog and a wiki to help us communicate with each other. The idea of putting stuff on a blog was that then other people could see things too and we could get input from other people. Uh, then the wiki was supposed to be where we put our various ideas. Uh, the wiki got hacked and we had to take it down, but the blog was useful. I learned, though... Well, it was hard. it's hard for most people to write stuff on a blog. I, sometimes I would suggest that students or postdocs write a post and they would find it too difficult a task. They would find it too, like, pressure-fold. 
Um, so <laughs> it ends up mostly being me, but then various other people, like maybe about 15 other people, such including Jessica, have have um, had stuff to say. So I've asked them if they could write for it too. So it's a way of getting having conversations. It is difficult to write for your blog. I was just going to say, Andrew, <laughs> maybe it's hard for you to understand, but I think, I mean, you've established like quite a record with it. I think a lot of people tune in to, to hear what you're going to say. So it is, I understand why other people would be like, oh my God, it's too much pressure because you just, I had to just get over it and be like, I don't care if they're going to compare me to his posts and they're not going to be as good, but it is tricky. Well, your posts are, are definitely better than the average post of mine, so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think what is really interesting there is that every time I look at the post, there, there's such an interesting s- series of comments below. You seem to have a very active community around it, and it's always very thoughtful. And yeah, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if you need any special um, moderation, but also normally the comments are pretty interesting and no, nothing nothing too bad. There's, there's no crazy people writing crazy stuff as far as I can tell. Yeah. It's yeah, not so interesting for the yeah. crazy people, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier, not about the yeah. blog, but about statistical yeah. graphics that yeah. I, because I'm a user of graphs ever, ever since I was a, a physics student and graph data and graphed curves and, and models and, and so forth. And I think over the years, it struck me that I think everybody needs to have their own theory of statistical graphics. Like in mm-hmm. the same way as if you're writing, you need to have a theory of writing. Or if you're drawing, you can't just say, I'm going to draw what I see. You have to have a, a kind of approach its goals. Or if you're making music, you can't just say, hey, let's bunch of us, let's form a musical group and do music, right? You have to have yeah. music that you want to do. You have a certain style. It doesn't mean your style is better than everybody else's, um, but, but you need that. And I, I think that for quantitative things, people don't always understand the importance of style or the necessity of style. Like style is seen as a kind of... Um, luxury but it's not mm-hmm. a luxury it's more of an organizing principle and and that's also clear with writing that if you're writing except for perhaps the most functional writing like the instructions for how to operate your microwave oven or something like that you you need to have a style because if something is boring to read then no one will read it. I mean, if you teach as a teacher, if you teach a class and, and write a two-page document for the students to read, they won't read the two-page document. Um, yeah. And so it, it's it's a it's really it's needed. Right? Yes. So I and and I think the flip side of that is that on the other hand, then you have people saying, "Oh, it, someone's a designer," as if there can't be any connection to science because design is supposed to be some like separate thing, but there one can draw the analogy of something like building bridges or or that these things are designed, but they still have to work. Yeah. I I really like the way you are, you are describing this because in a way it it reminds me of something that maybe I was, I was hoping to discuss that to me, it reminds me of the role of theory, right? The fact that if you don't have a theory, theory doesn't have to be necessarily perfect or or always super predictive, but it's a way to organize your thoughts so that you can 
think systematically about something. So I, I don't know if this rings any bells <laughs> on your side, but the way you describe style to me reminds me the how important it is to, to have theory and also a theory of graphics in, in this specific instance. Well, it's, it's like they say in chess, having a plan won't win you the game because presumably you're playing against someone else with a plan too and you're not both going to win. But if you don't have a plan, then you'll lose. You won't be able to move forward. And part of having a plan is recognizing, being aware of that you have a plan and being aware of what the plan is. And then when things go wrong, you can change things. So actually, yeah. it's like putting your, as a scientist, like putting your marker down. I'm not really into like betting. It's not like I would say you literally have to bet money on things, but like conceptually setting it down and saying, this is the model I'm going with is very valuable, even though, or I should say, especially though we know that that model is going to be wrong and it's going to fall apart at some point. Yeah. But the yeah. more explicit you can have that model or style or system, the more that you can then know when to work on improving it or abandoning it. Yeah, we actually wrote a paper about some of this as it applies to um, sort of theories of visualization for exploratory analysis, um, where I think that's a place in visualization where, you know, we're building all these tools to help people do interactive data analysis through visualization, but we don't always, like if you ask us, the the people developing these tools or the researchers in, in the area, like what our, what our sort of guiding principles are, I think it's often, well, we just want to let people explore data as easily as possible. Um, but I think there you can easily run into to places where you just like you have no theory to tell you how to design um, something in sort of a better way versus a worse way. Like you just don't know. And so we wrote um, a paper for the Harvard Data Science Review like about a year or so ago um, where we sort of talked about this as applies to exploratory visual analysis. And we argue that even if it's a bad theory, like Enrico was saying, um, or both of you guys were saying, that it still can be useful because you need to know sort of how you were wrong. And if you never state what you're going for, what you think the objective is, how do you know when you were wrong? Yeah, that, that's an area of data visualization that I really love. And I think people tend to talk less about it. I think there is more of a, I think the, the, the general idea with visualization is that it's a tool for communication, but there is less, um, I would say there is less discussions about how to use it for exploration. And by the way, the word exploration itself is so <laughs> contentious mm. in a way. <laughs> so, um, yeah. It's funny. I thought it's the other way around that everybody talks really? about exploratory. Data yeah, I was kind of thinking in that academia, too. <laughs> right? In academia. In academia, yeah, 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 and, absolutely. Yes. I mean, and nobody like really gets what communication means. <laughs> well, I think I think that one problem is communication is often viewed as as being a kind of unidirectional thing so like mm. they'll say things like scientists should learn how to tell stories because people think in terms of stories and and mm. i hate mm. that kind of attitude i mean sure people think in terms of stories but but this attitude that oh you're the scientist you already know the answers but now you have to convey it to people so you have to learn how to be a storyteller and and have a good bedside manner right like it's all like connected with like oh you don't want to be a jerk right like you want to be mm. it's like you, narrative medicine all this stuff and it's like the the what people are actually doing there is great but the idea the framing that it's all about how to communicate truths to people i think is misleading i think it's more accurate to say that we're people too 
And we learn from stories. So this is something that my colleagues and I have been thinking a lot about over the years. Like, what makes us believe things? And, and often we're convinced by stories. And I, we, we, I characterize the effect of stories as being anomalous and immutable. And by anomalous, it's a story as a surprise. So the convincing stories have some twist in them. Um, something unexpected, even if you think about a scientific method, I didn't think this method would work. And, and then it did or, <laughs> or, or, or whatever. And then it's immutable in the sense that a good story is grounded in reality. And like, if, if you kick it, your foot hurts, right? Like as it, as in the, the famous Boswell story. And so you have like, it, but so we we kind of learn from or we, we, we learn from these stories, which are a reality. I mean, maybe the term story isn't the best in that sense, because I'm not talking about stories that are made up, but I'm talking about true stories. Um, but but we learn from these. But it's it's kind of necessary that the stories have this grounding in truth so that they can disprove our theories. And there's a mm -hmm. sense in which a good story, like a, like if you were to take all of the things that people have said in your podcast, right? So maybe you've done however many podcasts and each podcast on average, maybe there are five stories. Like when someone tells you, hey, let me tell you a story, blah, 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 blah. And if you look <laughs> at those stories, some of them are going to be just made up. Right. I mean, we have these horrible examples of stuff where people just say, like, there is a famous example from a few years ago in a book where somebody said that a certain, it was like a certain data problem caused 70 deaths a year in a small town. And it was like, how the hell, like, it made no sense, right? So they just made it up. But I think the stories that are good, like, if you could, in theory, track them down, and I think they would have this characteristic that they disprove an implicit model of the world. Right. Does and it have to do with news, newsworthiness as well? Like in, in journalism, you have certain newsworthiness criteria. Well, exactly. Dog bites man, man bites dog. But mm -hmm. here's the point is that when something is surprising, it's surprising relative to an expectation. And so that model of the world is is that. So that when we talk about discovery and surprise, there are theories implicitly there already yes this is yeah i was going to tie this back to the exploratory analysis thing as well like i think one of um i mean i think we talk about exploratory visual analysis a lot in viz probably more than communication but um you know it's there's always this role of expectations and what you're bringing like what you're expecting to see um both in communication and exploratory visual um, analysis. And I think at least in visualization research, that's something that has, we've always sort of backgrounded. Um, you know, we've always acted as though like the data speaks for itself when it obviously, um, does not. So it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think, yeah, that's all like theories of how, you know, um, how visualizations act as model checker. One thing that Andrew and I have, um, like in the same paper I mentioned already, he had, he had been thinking about this years ago. Um, as a way to sort of um, think about the role of graphics in exploratory data analysis and how, um, in a sense, you can tie it to confirmatory data analysis through this idea that a good graph is um, helping us check a model, some implicit model often, sometimes an explicit model like in confirmatory data analysis. But there's always, you know, some expectation um, and the, the graph tells us, you know, how much the data deviate from that. 
So when you say model check here, do you mean like checking the model that you have stored in, in your head, like a mental model? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. So in, in exploratory visual analysis, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's always, um, you know, some background assumption potentially. And a lot of times, and this is stuff that Andrew had spoken about back in 2003 in uh, a paper. So you can cut me off whenever, Andrew, and um, <laughs> tell it yourself. But basically... You know, like you can think of, um, you know, a visualization as giving you almost like a test statistic or a vector of test statistics in a hypothesis testing type framework, if you want to look at it that way, where, you know, you have something that you're you're trying to check for, like you make a graph in order to check, like, you know, like how well does my data conform to some expectation? And sometimes that's really explicit mm. and like built into the visualization. Like I want to, you know, in like a, a sort of model fitting um, or preliminary model fitting kind of um, stage of a workflow, you're looking at things like maybe residuals and you know that exactly how to read the chart because um, it's sort of built into it that like if your data deviates from the expectations um, that you want your residuals to um, have then or to fulfill, then it'll be obvious because you'll see like deviations from symmetry in the plot um, or even a scatter plot, you know, like often if you have a bivariate scatter plot, like the most common sort of built in, um, you know, thing that you're checking against is sort of like a straight diagonal line representing kind of perfect linear association. So the idea that back in 2003 that Andrew started talking about and other people in um, statistical graphics have also gotten into like Andreas Buja, Diane Cook and others, you know, um, there's this work in sort of graphical statistical inference that gets into this idea of, you know, like how visualizations can function um, sort of as model checks. But then within that, you know, people have gone in different directions where Andrew's original, original formula, formulation, I believe, was sort of more in a Bayesian direction where it's not that we're, t we're testing some hypothesis and we just want sort of, you know, our p-value or our kind of yes-no answer, but it's, it's that we're, um, you can think of the graph as kind of like uh, the comparison that you're doing mentally when you look at a graph um, is kind of akin to doing like a posterior predictive check in Bayesian stats where you're sort of imagining like, you know, under my expectations about the process that created my data, what do I expect the data to look like? Um, uh, so, so what is what is sort of what would reasonable data look like under the under the predictions I want to make and how much does the data that I actually got sort of compare to what I would expect? So it's almost like, you know, you could imagine on some level, maybe this doesn't happen all the time, but it's almost like when when you look at graphs, you're sort of imagining, you know, um, you know, reasonable data under some some set of expectations you have and you're comparing that to what you see. Um, Andrew, I don't know if you want to say anything there. I think that's. That was just sort of the idea I wanted to bring up. Well, I'll, I'll, I, yeah, I, I have more to say about that, but actually let me jump to something else, um, which is a paradox that we, we learn from stories and the best stories have surprises in them. Like I would almost argue all stories have surprises in the sense that if there's no surprise, you don't bother telling the story. Um, like they, So we're always using just as we use graphs to learn and to discover, which means to be surprised relative to our implicit models, we consume stories in order to refute various models of the world. But yet the, the paradox is that how can we learn from surprising things? Like it seems the usual way we think about statistics is that we learn from um, the expected, like random samples, right? That's like, if I'm going to do a survey, I don't say, 
I found the th- 1,000 weirdest people in America and asked them their opinions about things. And I really wanted to be surprised, and you'll never guess what I found. <laughs> no, what you'll do is you want to ask a, re- a representative sample of people, and, and like you don't really have the goal of being surprised. You just you want to see that. So this was sort of bothering me, actually, because after I wrote the paper, the, 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 the paper that my colleague and I wrote about why how we learn from stories, I drew directly connected to the, the papers that Jessica mentioned where we earlier I had written that graphics are a form of model check. So then I argued stories are a form of model check. But then again, it then people ask the question, then how can it be that you learn from anomalies? And my, I don't know, like my, my resolution of this is that it's related to a kind of Popperian or Lakatoshian view of science or Cunian view or whatever, I guess the standard view now of science, which is that we alternate between normal science and scientific revolutions. And when we're doing normal science, we are want kind of representative samples and we want to help build and we want to build theories and modify our theories. Um, Then when we're doing revolutions, we're trying to see what's wrong with our theories. And there we're looking for counterexamples. Now, I'll only say one more thing, which is that when you say this, it always sounds like revolution is the hero and normal science is is like the loser in this game. But that's not true because the revolution only exists because... um, because there was the normal science that allowed it. And the goal of the revolution is to replace it with a new normal science. And so it's like both mm. of these steps are mm. um, important. I have a question here. Like how, how open are people really to changing their minds based on statistical information? I think that's <laughs> it's something like the last few yeah. years has maybe been an a interesting research topic, no? I was thinking too, like as Andrew was talking about anomalies, like do you... Like, should you have to go out explicitly searching for anomalies, um, like to break a theory? Or if we were all sort of honest scientists, could we um, kind of through our own, like just seeing the data that we collect, um, find anomalies? Like if we're willing enough to sort of admit when our when our mindset is not right, um, you know, then then we should be seeing probably anomalies a lot. Well, this is kind of related to this like unitary nature of consciousness thing, or even the idea that we talked about earlier of having a plan. Like it's, it's, it seems pretty fundamental, like to, to mathematics. It's, I mean, the way cognition works in general, not just like human brains, that it seems like there needs to be this executive function and this alternation of, of processes. So like the same, you need a division of labor somehow. Um, so maybe one scientist could create and refute her own theories and gather data, but maybe not all at the same time. I mean, mm-hmm. another example is in math class way back when, when you're asked, sometimes you're asked to either prove something or come up with a counterexample. And they always say you can't do both at the same time. You have to first <laughs> assume it's true and try to prove it. And then if you can stop and assume it's false and, and, and try to do that too. So we, we, we do kind of use the multiple humans yeah. in the system right. to play different mm-hmm. roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have another question, like looping back to the beginning. So, I think you rightly explained visualization is, is really a skill and, and a practice and there's no single right way, but it's like a highly personal like thing, which 
how you do it, right? And there could be many ways to do it right. Is it the same for statistical practice, like for applying statistics, or is it in statistics more for a given problem, there is a correct solution? Uh, there, of course, there are many ways of, of solving problems. I, I actually wrote something once about what I call the methodological attribution error, which is people attributing to their method what's also a property of their skill. And mm -hmm. so you'll, you'll see yeah. this with like renowned statisticians um, or maybe not so renowned statisticians also that they just think some method is inherently better. Um, but yeah, there, there's always so many unwritten rules. And they might just be better at applying it or failing to apply another technique successfully, which somebody else might have. Yeah, I'm, I'm better at some techniques than others. So you just mm -hmm. that's how that's how it works. Um, so it's there's an interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because from the outside, so I have only statistics 101 knowledge, right? And to me, it always seemed there's this clear decision tree of if your data is shaped like that, then you need to apply a NOVA test or something like this, right? And we have the same for graphs. If you want to spot outliers, use a scatter plot, right? Yeah. And so I was always wondering how, how hard cut these rules are. And I'm, it's, I'm glad to hear that it's, it seems very similar, actually, that the deeper you go, the less clear it is how, how things should be. Actually. <laughs> I was influenced by a colleague, David Krantz, a psychologist who he, he was telling me about like decision theory. And he said the, the simplest version of decision theory is what you learn, like the, like von Neumann, Morgan Stern, you have a decision tree that you need to evaluate. So you, you compute all the things that go into it and you compute the tree. And then the next level of sophistication is to say, no, actually drawing the tree is important. And there's lots of psychological mm -hmm. experiments where they show people the tree and it's missing a branch and like people don't realize. So mm -hmm. like a lot of examples where the best decision is something that wasn't in the tree in the first place and no one tried mm -hmm. it. But then he said, that's also not enough. And so his take on how to on like decision analysis is that you start with goals. So you have goals and resources and stakeholders and all of that. It sounds kind of mm -hmm. soft, but it's not really softer than trees. So you, you basically design, you start with design a, thinking again. So. Well you, yeah, you start with your you start with your goals and, and and then all the other things, your goals and your constraints and and your resources. And then you consider ways of getting there. Um, while being open to that your goals might change and so forth. Mm -hmm. So yeah, statements like if your data look like this, you should use this model. That's like totally, that's horrible because you really want to be starting with your goals and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not in an empty way. Like, oh yeah, my goal is to publish a paper. My goal is to get this data analysis done. Like, you know, your, your serious goals. <laughs> Uh, whatever they are. <laughs> My goal is to not get shouted at on the internet, foremost. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> so I get it. I have to go now. So I'll see you all later. Um, but thanks for the opportunity for for talking with you all. This is this is always fun. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Thanks for okay. joining us. Thanks, Andrew. See you all later. Thanks again. Bye. Okay, and now we can continue the rest of the episode with Jessica. <laughs> So one question that I had going back to, let's say, the comparison between statistics and, and visualization, right? In my head, I'm always like, 
I can't say that one is better than the other, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So for for instance, when we teach visualization, we show the Anscombe's quartet. I think we have a huge bias there because it's almost like, take that statistics, right? <laughs> this is so much better. <laughs> this is how I <laughs> and, use it at least. <laughs> right, <laughs> sure. right. Everybody uses that way. It's like, hey, we go. That's the that's mm-hmm. why we need this. And uh, but no, because I think there's there's almost like a dance between having de- a lot of details so that we can maybe related to what, what Andrew was saying, right? The the surprising elements, but you can't do you can't reason only with surprise, right? And surprise can also right. overwhelm you, and uh, you may lose the signal as you look at a lot of noise right so i really see that as a dance between these two things the surprising the particular but also surfacing the the signal so yeah um yeah how how do you think about that i mean it reminds me of like you know tukey and others who have written about like the exploratory data analysis process where i mean my personal view is that in visualization we sort of take Kind of like the very initial stages, um, you know, where, well, the very initial stages of exploratory analysis are often something, you know, like just making sure there's no massive like chunks of missing data, um, figuring out what variables you have to begin with. But I would say we take this like then next stage of like, you know, I'm just trying to see where is there some sort of, you know, signal or what looks like a pattern, you know, what kind of relationships do I think I see we sort of in visualization I think think of that as exploratory analysis so it's sort of like very open-ended sort of clicking around to find patterns and I think we design kind of as though that is that is what what exploratory visual analysis is all about um Tukey for instance though talked about this sort of intermediate phase where you know you've noticed you've sort of generated some hypotheses about like you know possible relationships between variables um or the nature of certain distributions um and then you sort of need to know, well, like, you know, how much can I believe what I think I see here? Um, and and so, you know, there's also like, you know, exploratory analysis also involves things like starting to fit models to try to explain, like, if I think that this, you know, set of variables seems to be predictive of some other variable that I care about, you know, I would actually start fitting models and looking at deviation um, in things like residuals, seeing, you know, how well do my models actually explain what I'm seeing? And like the whole idea is that I want to like build up some sort of, you know, mental model kind of of the data generating process. Like I want to use stats to sort of, you know, help me figure out what can I believe, like in terms of like what signals are actually there and what and what is just sort of maybe not um, not actually going to hold up in, when I inspect it more closely. And so, um, so yeah, I think, you know, there's this... There's this weird stage where, or this weird sort of way in which like graphs are used, um, not just to show us things that maybe we didn't expect to see or we did expect to see, but also to give us some information about how much we should believe those things. Um, and I think that's where it's sort of kind of ambiguous. Like, so um, actually from Andrew's blog, I learned about, you know, this like sort of informal um, term someone used called the anthropic principle of statistics, which is like there are certain problems where you would use statistics. Like if your data, um, if, if the signal is so huge, you know, relative to the noise, like you don't really need to be running stats on that. Like you can yeah. just sort of, you know, see it and maybe you just make a graph and it's like obvious. Um, if your data, if the noise is very large relative to the signal, then it's sort of hopeless. And, you know, you could do stats, but like you're still kind of, you know, you're, you're dealing with too much noise. 
And um, and so it's like statistics is useful for this sort of middle set of problems. And so I think, I mean, one of the questions mm-hmm. the last year or two for me is like, you know, I think of this like, you know, we have like the the problems in the middle where we can use maybe visualization like separately from stats, you know, like what what do we think is a problem where visualization is simply, you know, not going to work? When is visualization sufficient without any follow up? Um, and I don't think there's like true or right answers. These are things we have to sort of figure out as a field. Um, but I think it's not we haven't always made explicit sort of what our what our assumptions are like I think we often maybe like implicitly when I look at like what people write about exploratory analysis and designing for you know exploratory visual analysis I think there's sort of this assumption that you know people can click around for patterns and maybe they'll you know like they care enough about finding the right answers like there's some you know like application or some reason why they're analyzing the data and so we sort of trust that you know they will look at things enough and make enough views and some of the views will be disaggregated enough that they can sort of get a sense of the noise and so you know we don't have to worry about explicitly supporting these like signal to noise kind of judgments we can just let people you know use these tools and they will figure out what they can trust and what they cannot trust and probably they'll follow it up if it's really important with like, you know, some further data collection and then they'll officially test any hypotheses that are really important. Like, I think we just sort of assume we don't even talk about a lot of it. It's just, but I I think like I get the impression that that's kind of what we imagine. Um, And I think there's really interesting questions. Like I think as someone who studied uncertainty vis for a long time and for a while, you know, I was like, we have to be visualizing uncertainty way more than we are. Like I, I think like some of the things I've seen in my research just with, um, you know, how robust these tendencies people have to just want to see things sort of summarized or to just want to rely on (laughs) statistical summaries over sort of raw data are, I mean, they're really kind of like compelling in, in the sense that like, you know, I think there's there's a lot of cases where, you know, people sort of looking at aggregated data can actually work. Um, it just kills me that we don't have like any sort of good formal way of describing why that is. So I think like I've sort of one of the reasons I feel like I'm being pushed more towards theory in the sense of like trying to set up like almost like mathematical frameworks to understand some of these things is that I want to understand why, you know, like or how do you explain that? Like if you have someone clicking around in a biz system trying to find patterns that like, you know, ultimately they they they, you know, are doing okay. Ultimately, like they find like the the correct ranking of patterns or whatever it is for the task. Like, um, so I think, uh, yeah, I'm kind of like really curious just to like use theoretical frameworks to to explain things that I don't understand. Like, why does this work out? Like, I think, for instance, maybe, you know, like there's certain ways in which a visual analysis process is redundant where you're sort of looking at the same data in multiple ways. And so, you know, if people kind of under update their beliefs often when they see a data sample, um, if you're looking at the same data sample multiple times, maybe it's sort of over time, you're kind of like <laughs> internalizing it. Like, I think there's all sorts mm-hmm, of, you mm-hmm. know, ways in which behavioral uh, econ can sort of help us as well as, you know, like theories of statistical learning. Like, I think, um, so yeah, I think it's like, that's, you know, I don't know that that's where mainstream biz is ever going to go. But for me, it's sort of, these questions about exactly when is visualization sufficient, like open this whole can of worms that just makes me think like, okay, we have to sit down and like really try to like figure out, can we explain to ourselves like how this, this paradigm works? <laughs> you touched upon so many interesting points. <laughs> I don't know where to go next. Yeah. There's so I many have a question on, on <laughs> I'm still stuck with that Enscom's quartet thing. So okay, yeah. for those listeners who don't know what it is, so it's, 
sort of a toy example to demonstrate why visualization yeah. is, is cool. And the idea yeah. is you have four artificial data sets that all have the same summary statistics, same mean, same standard deviation, yeah, like broad summary statistics are identical. Yeah. But when you Regression. plot them, you see yeah. four very different shapes, right? And yeah. so I was wondering, is there an inverse Anscombe squared where we would have like yes. four super similar plots, but the statistics tell us a hidden huh. message or something? Are you yeah. aware of anything <laughs> like that? Or? I can't think of anything. That that. Yeah, that is a strange yeah. question. Like one thing might be like sometimes we like fat tail distributions are really hard to see, but easy yeah. to. You yeah, know? I mean, like, like yeah, that's a good example. I think like the behavior at the tails can really um, impact, like you know how you model data and stuff. Like it actually matters yeah, but a lot. You'll never see it in a graph because you it's, might not it's notice tiny it, yeah. and very stretched out, yeah. but it still makes a difference. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So, so we might have biases towards really what is plotted well. Right in, yeah. in in our analysis, probably. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think of Anscombe's quartet, I guess, is just like, you know, there's like statistics, like multiplicity of statistics. And this like, you know, like that's why we visualize data. Like you can have the same statistical summary and um, the data looks very different. And I think it's, it's kind of interesting. Like recently, this seems to come up more in like machine learning. Like you can have, you know, multiple like, um, you know, models, like fitted models that, that seem mm -hmm. um, to do equally well, like on your test set or in your like sort mm -hmm. of IID mm -hmm. setting. Um, but then when you probe them along ways that matter to humans, like how, you know, how do they deal with gender, et cetera, like they, they can give you very different answers. So I think it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, visualization in the sense of just like trying to put the data in some form where you can bring your prior knowledge to bear, I think is like maybe Anscombe's quartet. We don't really think of it that way. It's like, oh, the answer is right there. Like they're all different. But I think it's like visualization <laughs> is often this like first step, you know, towards like letting us, letting us yeah. take what we know and try to apply it. I think it's just, we like to leave that kind of implicit, like that this is, this is just people will, will bring in their knowledge and they'll know what to do next kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to get from a lot of anecdotes to a theory or a model Ultimately, mm -hmm. right in 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 either right, discipline. which is a lot of it is yeah, telling yourself stories, trying to explain things to yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, I think we could give people better tools though, like as they're telling themselves stories, to make sure that their stories are kind of accurate. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like uncertainty yeah. visualization is sort of in that line, you know, like let's yeah, yeah. show or it maybe to you. even record the stories, you know, all that stuff, like the 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 construction process, like the sense making. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's interesting that the current tools don't seem to really include any special, I don't know, functions that help people reason more about either their prior knowledge or their beliefs, or even in building models or externalizing their knowledge. I think there is a huge, mm -hmm. there's an interesting space there where something could be done. And I think you, Jessica, did some some work in that space where you ask people to explicitly first mm -hmm. build a model or externalize mm -hmm. their just a belief prior and distribution. then yeah, yeah the prior so we gave and them then, the model then yeah. or um, the you draw yeah. it first you know like what do you think the statistics look like right yeah, yeah. which yeah. i like that stuff i mean i think the open ended sort of you draw it first thing is interesting the other stuff you know we did like eliciting priors where we would 
sort of have some Bayesian model and then we wanted to see how well does this model, this Bayesian model of cognition explain sort of what we actually see in, in terms of how people mm-hmm. update their beliefs. And I mean, I think that's a good example of where having sort of a, a theoretical framework, um, even if it's wrong, like even if people deviate because people do devi- deviate from like, you know, the rational Bayesian update in various ways, like you can still learn a lot about how, um, how they're off. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's not that we don't like design ways to incorporate prior knowledge. It's just they're all extremely implicit. Like and even like like Tableau, I didn't know this for a while, but like there's a whole like analytics pane in Tableau where you can add regression lines and you can see intervals of various mm-hmm. types. But it, it is very um it's very sort of rigid and constrained. Like you get some number of choices. Um, and I think it's really hard though. Like you want people to sort of, um, and actually my um, former student now faculty, Alex Kale and I are, have been working on something um, related to some of the ideas in the paper with Andrew, where it's like, what would this new generation of visualization tools look like where you could come in and not be sort of like a, you know, like a seasoned statistician, but still like, use the tool to work up towards sort of these like preliminary statistical models that help you understand like how much does this variable explain this other one, et cetera. So Mm. I think there's like a really, yeah, like a really interesting space of like, how do you sort of get people, give them sort of this like scaffolding in visual analysis tools so that they can, um, rather than just like their prior knowledge drives them to click around in all different ways and their prior knowledge like affects what graphs they draw, but like in this very implicit way, like how do we, how do we allow it, um, you know, to like the help the tool give them back something like the tool suggests if they're looking in our case, like if they're looking at a certain combination of variables, the tool might suggest like, do you want to try fitting a model to see, you know, how well you could predict this, this dependent variable based on, you know, the variables that you seem to think are important. So I think there's mm. yeah a very big space, but the whole thing with like eliciting people's beliefs and stuff also gets tricky. Like, you know, like ultimately doing data analysis is hard already and cognitively overwhelming. <laughs> so you can't be asking people a bunch of questions. And so I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting space. Yeah, you're making me think now about the, the idea that going back to the idea of exploratory data analysis and maybe an excessive focus to this idea that with visualization, you can just explore data for, for the sake of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh so it seems to me that maybe that led to designing these tools in a way that a person opening the application for the first time, right, can pretty much do anything with it. And if they don't do something, there's there's basically no guidance, right? It's completely open. But maybe there's space for something that is more guided in general. I think it's a right, underexplored... Yeah. Yeah. Underexplored modality where the system might actually guide you through a number of steps mm. without being like excessively rigid, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm. yeah. So we did. We we've, we've been building something that hopefully we'll have the paper out soon. Um, that's sort of an explore. It's kind of like a version of Tableau with like, but with like built-in model checking. And I think, yeah, like mm. it, it is trying to sort of give you tools that are a little more guided. Like it's not telling you exactly what to do when. But one thing we mm-hmm. see um, is that you know, like you you do sort of have to be careful about when you. For certain people, you know, like I think if you come in knowing, like having sort of a, a statistical workflow that you typically use, you might know that like I don't want to jump into model building right away. Like I need to just look at things. Um, but then if you um, and then I'll get to the model checks stuff later. And we've seen some people use our tool in that way. Like they just 
create a bunch of graphs and then they sort of like call up the modeling part of the, the interface. <laughs> but then we also see people, you know, like the ones who, who aren't as experienced with, with modeling where they just want to jump in right away to like building models. Um, and I don't think that's good either. So it's like, yeah, like the, the whole, like, I mean, I guess it's like a user experience design type question, mm. you know, like how do you yeah. gradually introduce mm. things is going to like matter in the end. If you just randomly apply models that somehow fit and you have no theory of the domain, right? And no, yeah. no idea yeah. of causality. It's, it's yeah. always going to be a bit nonsensical. And so. Right. That is actually, that's something we see with this tool we built as well. Like that some mm -hmm. people, it's almost like if you come from sort of like an ML kind of, you know, background, you're, you just want to like be trying out, like just swapping in variables in some statistical model until you can like, you know, get the best predictive accuracy. And, yeah. you know, in a visualization context, you're trying to make sure that like the, the predictions from the model that are plotted against the data, like best match the data. But it's like, that is not... I mean, it's sort of, yeah, contrary to this idea that like, you know, when we do exploratory data analysis, we're trying to like really understand um, and maybe test our expectations about like how the data were generated, which means like we we often do have in mind like, you know, like we don't just care about any variables. Like we need to be able to have some plausible explanation for why that variable might matter. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah it's and you need to have a lot of knowledge about what's again, what's a plausible range. Can this can this value even be below zero, right? It, or um, So we had this case with the COVID excess mortality in Sweden and Germany where there were just different spline fitting techniques and some of them were, they were just better, but you couldn't explain that mathematically, but more, you know, a lot about the domain, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so I think that's also when it gets interesting when, again, and then maybe it's again a matter of being skilled at, you know, finding the right model by applying statistics and visualization, but also knowing mm -hmm. what what to look for and what what has worked in the past and, you know, all that, that practical yeah. stuff. Training right. people on what to look for is another thing, yeah. Like um, mm -hmm. with like trying to build model checking abilities into a visual analysis tool, me and Alex Kale on some of that work, like, you know, like one thing we ran into is like people don't know, um, if we're trying to do this for people who don't have like a, a whole bunch of stats training and just like have some exposure to linear models, maybe like we got to teach them sort of what different types of misfit look like. Because like looking at, you know, predictions against observed data to sort of like check your model in a graphic is like this very multidimensional thing. It's not just like there's one way that predictions can deviate from like um, or the observed data can deviate from the model predictions. There's many different things you can look for. Like, you know, how does it, how does the model do at the tails of the distribution? Like, you know, like, is it biased overall? Like, um, so there's, yeah, there's this whole, you know, way or almost like a type of visual little literacy or data literacy. I think that that has to come along with, you know, tools that build more of this stuff in where you're, you're helping mm -hmm. people understand like, what is, how do you do model checks? Well, um, or like, um, yeah in a way that's sensitive to all the different ways things can be off. Yeah, this reminds me of, of a growing concern that I have. Um, over the years, I've, been, I've become more and more concerned with the idea that we test visualization tools with non-experts. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Th there's a huge, huge limitation there. And um, yeah. I don't know. I think if you, if you, if you, if you run an experiment that is based on very low level perception, maybe it's fine. You can, mm -hmm. you can pretty much one, any, any person is equivalent to another. Right. But as soon as you have some, you involve something 
I mean, you test something that involves, that requires some domain knowledge in order to understand yeah, the data. Right. Then it's like, um, I had experiments where they had both novices and, and actual practitioners who are familiar with the data. Yep. Just night and day, they're not even comparable. It's completely yeah. different kind of <laughs> experience. Totally. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, it's convenient samples usually. I mean, in biz mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Whole different topic. Um, <laughs> whole different topic, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. That, okay. that was quite, uh, wow. Yeah, great episode. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so many interesting things. E each of these topics, we could go on for hours, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's very fundamental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure, and, yeah. And um, hope to see you soon. Yeah, nice to chat with you guys. Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our homepage at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.